All right, so we're going to be continuing our study through our book this morning. And we're going to start out with the uh, introduction here. And the bulk of what we're going to be looking at this morning is scripture passages. So uh, for those of you who only have one copy or if you don't have a copy, we'll be getting into some scripture passages here shortly. So we're going to start at the beginning here of chapter 2. And chapter 2 starts out saying, you know, it's important for us to define what it is that we're talking about when it comes to the subject of conscience. And uh, this is where a lot of disagreements tend to happen when we're talking about different subjects because, you know, this person uses the word in one way and this person uses the word in another way. So we'll start out by defining what we're talking about. Toward the goal of defining conscience, we're going to look and see how this word is used in the 30 cases where we see it in the New Testament. Um, it is not, uh, there's not a close parallel word in the Hebrew Old Testament that parallels the word for conscience in the Greek New Testament, although that doesn't mean that the idea is not found in the Old Testament. It just means there's not just one word that parallels it. So, let's look at our, our New Testament occurrences of it. Uh, twice in Acts, 20 times in Paul's letters, 5 in Hebrew, 3 times in 1 Peter. And it'll be, I think, helpful for us to know what words we see alongside it. So, let's turn first to Acts 23. Acts 23 and verse 1. We've gotten there. Maybe someone would like to read that, or you can read it from the book if you've got it there in the book. Who'd like to read that for us? Bob? And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Okay. So how is his conscience described in this verse? What word do we see accompanying conscience? Good. Okay. And so... Uh, having a good conscience seems to be that it is acceptable to God. And then uh, either turn over a page in your Bible or continue down through your book there. Acts 24 and verse 16. Someone want to read that for us? Paul? So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Okay, and so our word there is obviously clear. So a conscience that does not accuse him. And then when we turn over a few more pages to Romans chapter 2, and I think it would probably be helpful to read verses 12 to 16. Uh, so let me, uh, let me read verses 12 through 16 so that we have the context of it. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Obviously, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is saying creation is a clear testimony of God to everyone who's in the whole world. Romans chapter 2, he's saying, even the Gentiles who don't have the special revelation of God in the law of Moses 
often will live according to the principles found in the law of Moses, and the reason for that is the conscience that God has given to each one of them. And so this is a, a key passage on understanding conscience. Also in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, Paul uh, says something very emphatic regarding his conscience. Someone want to read that? Romans 9 and verse 1. Okay, so in three ways he emphasizes I'm, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, my conscience along with the Holy Spirit is testifying with me, and so there's a question of whether the conscience is in agreement with what God and his spirit are saying, and whether we are speaking truth or not. Also Romans 13 and verse 5, conscience is connected with the reason for obeying government, Someone read that for us? Romans 13, 5, Jonathan. Okay, so Romans 13 says, the government's job is to punish you if you do evil. But there's more reasons to follow the government's authority than just, I'll get in trouble if I do wrong. It's because God says that you should do it and you should want to have a good conscience before God. All right, and then... 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, we'll see something that can happen that's a negative thing that can happen to the, the conscience. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 7, maybe someone read 8, 7, okay. Okay. So, uh, these verses, I think, are perhaps some of the most difficult to understand without looking at the whole context, but the broad context of 1 Corinthians 8 is that Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and there's people who are saying, idols don't matter, I'm not worshiping idols, I can eat food that's been offered in a pagan temple, and it has no significance for me whatsoever. And Paul says, part of what you're saying is true, and part of what you're saying is wrong because of the motivation of pride, and part of what you're saying is wrong because it has no consideration of the effect of your actions on other people. So, when it comes to verse 7, some people who come out of the background of having participated in idolatry, even though that meat is not morally evil, having been associated with the pagan temple, if they are tempted to go back into a form of idolatry, if their conscience convinces them they are participating in idolatry, Paul says their conscience then as a result is defiled, which verse 10 uh, sort of puts that responsibility on those who were behaving proudly in the Corinthian church. Someone read 1 Corinthians 8.10. Okay, so you have one person who says, idols are insignificant, there's only one true God, meat is not morally right or wrong. Then you have someone who says, my background is that I worship these idols, and this is part of a pagan sacrifice, and I'm convinced it's sinful to do that anymore. This person watches this person doing it, and they say, even though I'm convinced that it's wrong, I'm going to do it because I've watched this person. Paul says, you've led them into sin by violating their conscience. 
and that's something that we should certainly be cautious of. So then we come to 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 12, and I'll just read that. It says, So by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And so the, certainly the conscience there is described as something that can be wounded. So it can be weak, it can be wounded. When we get to the end of the chapter, we'll talk about is that a progression, is that the same thing, and, and so forth. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 25 uh, through 27. Someone want to read that for us? Uh, yeah, Evan. And so then this is a further development of what he said in chapter 8. There are really no idols. There are demons, but there are no idols. There is only one God. There are things that people worship as gods, but there's only one true God. And so if the one true God made everything in the whole world and said these things are good for food, we can't say that it's morally sinful to eat these things because God has given them to us for food. That being said... If someone specifically, in what it says in verse 28, if someone warns you and says, this meat was offered to idols, the fact that they would raise that probably is because it is significant to them. He's saying, you should be <laughs> at that point, you should say, I can't participate in this because you don't want to strengthen their belief that this is something that they should do. You don't want them to go back to that way of idolatry. And Paul says further in verse 29 through 30, the conscience sake that's in question in verse 28 is, if anyone says to you this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience sake, not your own conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? And so we see here that there is a degree to which conscience can assess other people's beliefs and agree or disagree. Right? So then we come to 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12, Paul is defending his apostleship against the accusations of people who've said that he's been self-serving in the way that he's approached the Corinthian believers, and he now speaks with regard to the ministry that God has given to him and his own assessment of it, in verse 12. Someone want to read 2 Corinthians 1.12 for us? Okay. So Paul's conscience there is assessing have I served God well? Have I done what God has called me to do? Have I done it with sincerity, holiness, and so forth, not with self-serving fleshly wisdom in, in the way that he behaved toward the Corinthians? <laughs> Second Corinthians 4 and verse 2 also uh, speaks to Paul's manner of ministry, but not specifically so much his own conscience, but his ministry's relationship to the conscience of other people. Someone want to read 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2? Jonathan? And you have renounced the first born of your 
Okay. So, as we come to uh, this passage, we have the question of whether, uh, what's our approach to ministry? Are we trying to do a bait-and-switch approach to ministry where we say one thing and do something else? Are we um, trying to trick people into believing in God? Are we distorting the message of the gospel? I mean, this is really important, I think, just as a brief aside, because it's easy for us, I think, when we're presenting the gospel, we want people to believe it. And so, we say an obstacle this person believing it might be the truth that if you follow Christ, your life may be hard. So I'm just going to sort of leave that out. And that, I think, is the mistake that sometimes has been made in the presentation of the gospel in our in our churches in the past century, sometimes we've said we're going to minimize this idea of, of suffering, of difficulty, of all those sorts of things, or of an emphatic need to repent, and instead we'll say things that are a little bit easier to accept, like pray a prayer and God will fix things in your life and all those sorts of things. Now, is that true? Does God clean up the mess of our lives that is the case because of sin? Yes. Is that all that he's doing, or is he doing it specifically to make it really easy for us? No, he's doing it because it brings him glory and because it produces Christ-likeness in us. And that process is not always, not always easy and sometimes connected with suffering and sometimes connected with persecution. And so we have to be careful. Sometimes I think the way that this verse applies to us is that we, we minimize those less attractive parts of the gospel. And Paul said in his ministry, I can't do that because the path to every man's conscience is to speak the truth clearly and without distortion. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 11, someone read that for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Okay, Paul. So his motivation for living is in the context of verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so because we have that fear of God and fear before God, then um, that's why they seek to persuade, uh, the Paul and others were seeking to persuade people to believe the message of the gospel. But God knows what they are like, and he, ho he hoped that the Corinthians also realized what he was like, what it was that he was trying to accomplish, that it was not selfish or um, in any way distorted. First uh, Timothy 1 and verse 5. First Timothy 1 and verse 5. Someone read that for us? So we see that phrase, good conscience, again. We see it also coinciding with a pure heart and a sincere faith. And that is the reason that Paul is, uh, not the re uh, this is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. The ministry that he's having there at Ephesus is supposed to have this result, that the instruction would flow out of these things and that it would produce spiritual maturity in these believers at Ephesus who potentially were being led astray by various things. 1 Timothy 1.19 is related to that. 
1 Timothy 1.19. Yes, Lord. Okay. So we see that having a good conscience and keeping faith is significant because there are those who have lost those things and have strayed away from following God. He gives examples in verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And so that's a, a pretty serious and sobering thing to think about the fact of the relationship of our conscience to our standing before God. First uh, Timothy 3 and verse 9 describes the qualifications for deacons, one of which says that they are to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so again, we have that idea of a clear conscience, just as earlier Paul said, I have a clear conscience before God in regard to my ministry, so too those who serve as deacons ought to hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And then 1 uh, Timothy 4 and verse 2 describes another of the negative effects that can happen to our conscience. Someone read that, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2. Yeah, Jim. Okay, so that's a very emphatic description of the conscience as being dull and unresponsive. Um, trying to think. I don't think I've ever witnessed it firsthand, but if you've ever branded a cow or something like that, uh, that's a, a mark that is both significant and that's not coming out easily. And that flesh that has been so branded is, uh, I mean, it's not going to be particularly sensitive to anything else, right? Because that hot iron has seared it, has, has deadened the nerves in that spot. And so a conscience that's described in that way is one that just doesn't respond the way that it's supposed to to different things. Then we have 2 Timothy 1. And verse 3. Second Timothy 1 3. Evan. Okay. So Paul's saying his conscience doesn't accuse him and also connects him with the faithfulness of those who have gone before him, right? And then Titus 1 and verse uh, 15. We have an interesting statement about conscience. Clive? To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. For both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Okay. So we've seen that the conscience can be seared. We see here that it can also be defiled for those who are defiled and unbelieving. And then we turn over to the book of Hebrews. We see in Hebrews 9, verse 9, one of the limitations of the Old Testament system with regard to conscience. Someone read verse 9. Okay. 
So there's a sense in which the Old Testament system made you ceremonially clean and reconnected you with the covenant community, but could not fully shake the sense of guilt connected with sin. Why? Because it was not a full and final sacrifice. We see in Christ that sacrifice is fully and finally made. So there is a sense in which our consciences can be clear now in a sense that the Old Testament believer, there was always that ongoing sense of, I've done what's required of me, I'm right before God, and then they sin again, and it has to be repeated over and over again versus a one-time sacrifice in the person of Christ. Um, Let me just read verses 11 to 15 along those lines. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so if those things could even in a temporary and a partial sense create a sense of acceptance before God and of forgiveness of sins, how much more can the perfect and one-time offering of Christ accomplish that goal? Hebrews 10 and verse 2. This is one of the instances where the word is not used so much in terms of conscience, but consciousness or awareness of something. Someone read that for us. Hebrews 10 and verse 2. Sure. Okay. And so the question there is whether they were aware of sins. Not so much did they assess them as right or wrong, just were they aware that they had sinned. And this was in the connection with the sacrifice of Christ as well as the sacrifices of of the Old Testament. Hebrews 10 and verse 22. Let me just read verses 19 through 25 because I think that this is a, an important passage to understand the context of. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume their adversaries. And then drop down to verse 39. Author of Hebrews says, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And so this idea of having a right conscience before God is connected with God's saving work. And it's important because lacking that means that it's possible for us to go on sinning deliberately 
and sinning deliberately means the certainty of God's judgment, but the author of Hebrews speaks confidently to his audience, saying, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the saving of the soul. And then we come to Hebrews 13 and verse 18. Very similar to what Paul has said previously. Pray for us, for we are sure we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And then we have our reference here in 1 Peter. So 1 Peter 3, verse 16. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2, verse 19, first of all. This is in the context of suffering. 1 Peter 2 and verse 19. Someone read that for us. Okay, and uh, where's our word conscience in that verse? Mindful of God, right? Okay, and then First Peter 3 and verse 16 and 21. Someone read those two for us. Okay, heaven. Okay, so the first verse has the context of if you're doing things you know you're not supposed to do and you suffer, it's your own fault is basically Peter's point. But if you're doing what's pleasing to God and you suffer, then that's counted as worthy and honorable and God will reward you for that. And then with regard to verse 21, uh, baptism doesn't save you by the fact that it's water. And baptism doesn't save you in a sense of like the actual act produces your salvation. Rather, it is symbolic of what God has actually done, part of which is cleansing our conscience through the salvation that, that baptism is a picture of. So these are all these passages about conscience in the New Testament. And so if we were to go back and group those, and this is, I, I wanted us to do the survey of those passages, but I also think that it's helpful for us to look uh, positively of what the conscience can be. So obviously you have what's in the book there, but we can also talk about whether we agree with these categories or whether they need revised in any way. So what can the conscience be? Okay, good. All right. And what else? Okay. Um, uh, let, let's say, what can it be? Let's start out with what can it be positively. There's two main kind of categories that we see there in the book. Okay, so it can be good and it can be cleansed. What are some of the uh, synonyms for good that we see? that we've seen in those verses, either from the book or just from what you recall looking through there? Okay, so for this one, it could be washed, purified. All right. What's that? Okay. Which I think that one goes more with here, blameless. No, no, that's fine. Uh, I think clear would go here. Clear, all right. 
so that's what it can be positively, all right? Uh, what about negatively? What can it be? All right, weak. I think that has more to do with what it does, so we'll get more to that in, the, in just a moment. Right now we're just talking about what it is. What's that? Okay, seared, and they sort of put that one down here at the bottom, seared. Okay. All right, defiled. Okay. Okay. What else? Okay. Let's put gold to sin. And one more. Okay. Evil or guilty. So, um, with regards to these, um, we see a quote there from John MacArthur. A weak conscience is not the same as a seared conscience. A seared conscience becomes inactive, silent, rarely accusing, and sensitive to sin. But the weakened conscience usually is hypersensitive and overactive about issues that are not sins. Ironically, a weak conscience is more likely to accuse than a strong conscience. Scripture calls this a weak conscience because it is too easily wounded. People with weak consciences tend to fret about things that should provoke no, no guilt in a mature Christian who knows God's truth. So here's an interesting quandary, and this is something that I want to take a few minutes to discuss. Do you agree with that quote by MacArthur? Do you agree with this progression here? And the third question that we can maybe talk about is, is someone who has a uh, is someone who has a weak conscience in the same category, not in the same degree of being not right before God, but are they at least in the same column here with all these other words? So let's start out by talking about um, uh, whether, we, whether we agree about some of these things. Do we, do we see this as a progression? Okay. What about when the verse, the passage that we read, and I forget which passage it was, it said that the weak conscience can be wounded. I think it was in 1 Corinthians 8. Is that a progression? Is that just something that happens to the weak conscience? What do you think? What else? Other thoughts along those lines? What about, what about, I guess here's the question I'm asking. Is it one, two, three, four, five, six? Or is it more like this? Okay. 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 Anything else on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I would tend to think 
that this would be tied to Romans 1. Okay? What does Romans 1 say? God gave them over to a depraved mind to do all sorts of sins without remorse, right? Um, which I don't think can accurately describe a believer. There are some people who question whether it can describe anyone who will eventually become a believer. I'm not sure that we can legitimately go that far because there's things in that list in Romans 1 like disobedient to parents that characterize all of us at some point before we trust Christ, and I don't know that that's... Um, right. Right. Like, yeah, it's not an exact progression, but I think even as Christians, we tend to be desensitized. All right. So here's another interesting thing along those lines. Let's say this is our conscience, and let's say it's got all these different segments in here. I think it's possible for us to have a positive conscience in all of these areas and then have a negative conscience in this area. Is that a state at which we should continue? No. Because what happens if we just have a bad conscience about this one thing? Is it really in isolation, like those lines would indicate? No. If I start to be desensitized to God in this area, that's going to spill over into this and this, and it's eventually going to affect the entirety of my person. So along the same lines, I don't think that a Christian can have a seared conscience because if you get to the point where nothing bothers you in terms of sin, that's really hard to reconcile with the picture of a godly person. Um, I mean, even in Peter's writings where he says Lot, his righteous soul, was stirred up by the things he saw around them, even though he's living in Sodom, engaged in that culture, at some level it bothered him. So if we take that passage to mean that Lot was a believer, Lot's like bottom of the barrel in terms of like our example of what a good believer would be, I think. Um, even in that case, it seems that he was bothered by the things that were happening around him. Not bothered enough to leave Sodom until God drove him out, but bothered enough to say these things are wrong. So. Can it be seared? No. Can it be weak? Or can it be potentially in this middle category? Possibly. And, and again, you know, maybe there's, maybe you follow God in a whole lot of ways, but when it comes to speaking the truth, you can lie and it doesn't seem to bother you too much, at least initially. Like maybe later in the day, later in the week, it bothers you. But what's the problem with that? The problem with that is, this is a category of sin that we're tolerating in our lives that is going to spill over and affect a lot of other things. All right, so this is what can the conscience be. Our goal is that in all areas of life, it is good and it is cleansed, which I suppose goes to the question of how can it be cleansed? Is that something that we do, God does, both? Okay, both. Any verses come to mind along those lines? 
Norma. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So that'd be the work of Christ in that verse, certainly, that's accomplishing that. Sandra, you said both. Do you have any? Okay. I think, Paul, I think that's where the connection point would be for me. Not that we do it in and of ourselves, but God said, here's the response you're supposed to have to sin. So if we find that we've got this area that our consciences are not clear, then the solution is to appeal to Christ who washes, purifies, cleanses them. Okay. All right. Um, we also have the question of what our conscience can do. Any further thoughts about this before we move on to what our conscience can do? Okay. Let me erase this real quick. So with regard to the activity of our conscience... This is its, uh, its function, its purpose, what it's able to accomplish. What, uh, what three things are, do we see the conscience can do? Okay. So bear witness or uh, um, I'm wondering if Hmm. Let me write that up there, and we'll, we'll see which of these categories it fits with, or if maybe it's a fourth category they didn't highlight. What else can it do? Okay. Can judge. Specifically, who is it judging? What's the third one that we have there in the book? Okay. Lead specifically to some kind of action. Okay. So, of those three categories, does convict fit with those, or would it be its own category? I'm leaning toward the third one. Yeah. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. So if conviction is more of a positive thing or a negative thing, like sometimes we talk about someone having a conviction that to do whatever, and sometimes we talk about someone was convicted of a crime. I mean, we use the word in both senses. Um, right. Right, 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 right. Uh, we use the word with, with. I'm trying to think what the word. We have um, the positive or negative connotations of a word, right? Um, which doesn't mean, which doesn't speak to the outcome of that whole event, like whether the outcome is positive or negative. Like those are two separate things, but they are related. So, yeah, I mean, all of these things are 
are useful things that the conscience does that can and should lead us to be more like God. Um, so, with regard to the first one, we've got some passages there like the one in Romans 2, Romans 9, and the passages in 2 Corinthians. This one is more the one where we are trying to assess um, 1 Corinthians 10.29. Let me, let me turn there real quick. And, and the middle one is probably something about, uh, I guess we'd have to ask, is this good? Or is it just something that, that happens? Because he says in, verse in 1 Corinthians 10.29, why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? So he seems to be saying it's a natural thing that happens that it does evaluate other people's consciences. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that something that we should try to suppress or encourage? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I know it's nothing. Right. But when another person takes away something huge, right. I'm free to eat. Right. But if I choose not to because of that person's conscience, it's what's breaking my life. Right, right. Um, Kelly and I were talking about this the other day, and I think that this might be a helpful illustration, sort of thinking through some of these things. We'll kind of get into it in, uh, I think, two weeks in a, in a chapter down the road, but I think just for sake of illustration about this whole, this whole discussion, let's take two separate, um, two separate examples. Um, let's say that there is someone who is convinced that it is wrong to, and let's just take a silly example, it is wrong to wear white socks with sandals. Okay? <laughs> just for sake of illustration, just for sake of illustration. If someone is convinced that it is wrong to do that, that you shouldn't do it. Um, maybe I know that there's nothing wrong with that, but this other person is convinced that it's wrong. And so I do it, and this person doesn't. Here's the question. Is my doing this thing going to lead the person who doesn't to violate their conscience and jump over here and thereby sin by violating their conscience? Possibly, but I think it is unlikely because their attitude toward me is going to be, why is that guy wearing white socks with sandals? I would never do that, et cetera, et cetera. So we have someone here, and this I think is, is potentially some of the tension that was happening in the Corinthian church, although I think this happens more we have someone here whose, whose motive tends to be something of pride. I would never do that. I'm going to look at you and say, you should never do that, but I'm not changing their behavior. And so what this person might say is, I am offended. But Paul's concern is not, are you offended? Does this bother you? 
Paul's concern is, am I going to sin? In contrast, let's say that there's the question of, and again, this is a, a more of a hot-button topic in our culture today. In Jeremiah and in other places, it speaks of the fruit of the vine in connection with celebration, in connection with God's returning, and all of those sorts of things. Jesus turned water into wine at Canaan Galilee, all those sorts of things. Again, I'm not saying that we should change anything about what our church says, that we should all go out and hit up a bar or anything. That's not my point in doing this. I'm just saying, let's take something about which there is disagreement in churches today. So let's say someone says, I believe that I am free to do this. And this person says, I should not do it. Okay? But, here's the concern. This person, instead of having, this person is here looking down at this person, right? This person is here looking up at this person. Here's a new Christian that just joined the church. Here's a mature Christian who's been a part of the church for a long time. This person says, you know what? I used to be a drunk. That's sin, right? It's sin to be a drunk. The Bible clearly says that. So, if the Bible says it's sin to be a drunk, and this person is convinced they shouldn't do it, but then they're led to do it because they see this Christian that they look up to doing it, that's what Paul's point is in 1 Corinthians 8-10. to 10. I have led this person into sin by violating their conscience. So, the main question is, am I going to lead someone into sin? We tend to think of these examples, and I think Paul's point is mostly these examples. So I think that's important for us to think through. Alright, any further thoughts or questions before we wrap up? Yes. Do you wear white socks? Oh, you don't have to answer that. Oh. <laughs> All right. Let's close with prayer and we'll uh, head into the service. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together. Pray that you give us wisdom as we seek to apply these truths uh, in our lives and with one another. In Christ's name, amen.